Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. This is episode 140 and we're continuing our venture into future SM releases, Roman. This is indeed part three, the third and final part of our treasure hunts for Essen 2019, where we take a look at 12 games which should be coming out at the show, and we haven't played them. We just look at the rule books, we look at videos, we look at whatever material we can get hold of, and make a decision as best we can, and guess whether we think these games will be a treasure and something worth taking home, or a trap to steal your budget from you. So, Sean, we're back to guessing about games, and everyone loves these episodes. <laughs> they do, and we do have to put out our little warning, Ronan, that we have never played these games. We are just guessing about them. We're just looking at rule books, looking at videos, trying to grok the feel for the game, and then we're just going to make a random guess at the end if we're going to like it or not. Exactly. Should we crack straight in, Sean? The Let's time is pressing for Essen when this releases. People want this to get into their ears as quick as possible. Go for it, Ronan. What have you got for us? Our first one up is Terramara, a two to four player game with around a two hour playtime. The designers is the Akatoka Group, which is Flaminia Brasini, Virginio Gili, Stefania Cubido, and Antonio Tinio, and it's from Quinid Games. Now, in Terramara, each of the players is a chieftain of a northern Italian clan only around three and a half thousand years ago, Sean. So, we'll all remember that from our childhood. Oh, well, obviously. Game is played over five rounds. It's a worker placement game, and you're going to be scoring points during the course of the game, and also for artifacts you've been able to build, for being higher up in military than your rival clans, for getting your caravans along a road, because apparently these were a trading people that lived in the Terramara, and for any materials I've left over and outposts you've been able to build along those trading routes. Now, there are five strips of action spaces, and on your turn, you send an explorer or a chieftain out onto one of the action spaces to take that action. Chieftain completely blocks the space. When an explorer is there of another colour, if you've got more military than them, you can still send one explorer in to take it. Now, these strips, they come over the five rounds. Only the ones that go on this round or previous ones are going to return to you. You can place them on future actions, but that blocks out that worker until you get to the end of the round, which is relevant to the strip that you have placed it on. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to collect resources for starters. There are various resources in the game. You should also collect workers because your workers are called explorers and there's something else called workers. And you're going to use those workers to refine the goods into better goods. When you've done that and you've got these refined goods, you can use them to build artifacts, which is a market of cards at the bottom of the board. There's a canoe that you can make move along a river via your actions. And the further along the river, the more artifacts you have got access to and can build. And the artifacts will give you lots of different effects and they will score you points. There's also, as I said, caravans, which you can use actions to move along a road. That opens up certain action spaces to you as the rounds go on. And also you can build outposts in various places to score those victory points. You can also raid each other, depending upon how your military is. And obviously, if you're higher up, you're going to be more successful. You can go and raid the other players. Each player is also going to have a character, which is basically going to be what their clan is. Now, you get given these, but once you know the game, you're going to be able to draft your characters and your resources to start off to set you down a particular path for this two hours of worker placement, Euroy goodness in Terramara, Sean. Now, this to me, and it's not just thematic but it gave me a 
feel of Stone Age, particularly because a lot of your focus appears to be getting resources in order to turn them into cards, which are at the bottom of the board, the artifacts, which will give you special powers and bonuses and drive your VP scoring. Any thoughts on that, Sean? I didn't really get Stone Age from it, but I suppose... Yeah, you you make your point is is well made, Ron. But I didn't get Stone Age when I was first looking at it. I, it was the action selection where you're placing almost in advance, and depending on where you place, the timing of when you get those workers back reminded me of a game I played two essence ago and i can't remember the name of it but it was about witches in the wood or the dark wood or something like that and that had a very similar mechanism and i really enjoyed the mechanism i didn't particularly enjoy the game itself but that mechanism in itself it leaves a, a whole wide slew of choices random it does seem like the action spaces are quite tight and they, the number of spaces changes upon the number of players you've got. Therefore, I think you're going to be forced to play into the future sometimes. It also gives me the feeling that the military is going to be quite important, that ability to jump in where another player is, and that this is one of those games you do not want to get behind in military. Yeah, I actually really like the thought of the military in that you, it's just going to give you more choice because you can muscle in on people, and I thought it was very thematic. Another thematic element to this game Ronan is your character can can basically grow up in the game but you choose when so you go from an adolescent with a certain player power to an adult with a different player power another interesting choice within the game yeah it's a flip of a card I do like it though I do like the fact that it's a thematic touch but it's, you're just flipping a card over and getting a different power I'm going to go back to the military Mm-hmm. In a two-hour Euro like this, which has got a little bit of conflict, the fact you can raid each other, mm, that makes me pull back a little bit on the reins. You know me, Ronan, I don't. When I'm turtling up in the corner, I don't like to be messed with. So, yeah, that was also... A, a know, against you, I wouldn't mind it. It's just if it happened <laughs> to me that I'd get upset. Ronan, the one thing, the overwhelming thing that I saw when I looked at this game was how much there's going on. There's that military track. There's the caravan. There's the canoe track. There's cards that are going to change the way you do things. There's You, you can change your own character in the game. The boards change as they flip over. Different actions become available. Is there too much going on, I suppose, is what I'm asking you. I'm going to tell you why I'm finding it hard to judge, because that rule book, not good. It reads like the the A4 bundle that a designer would give a publisher and say, this is my, you know, the ideas I have. You're going to need to polish that, refine the game and refine the rule book because it was very poorly structured. It talked about a lot of things before it actually told you how you get to things or how you use them or utilize them. It brought in ideas that are in game without explaining them to a few pages on. So to me, the rule book made it seem a lot more complicated than I think it is. Yes, there's a lot going on. Yes, you're definitely going to be deciding, especially what artifacts you take, what path you want to go and craft in your own path. Possibly, I think the rule book is not helping the feeling of overwhelming to some people. Okay, Ronan, I'm going to sum up on Terramara. I think it's going to be a treasure for me. And for these reasons, I think, yeah, the rule book is hard to grasp but i think the theme of the game is going to make it easy to to play once you do know it i like the modular replayability of it i like that you're going to build up your own tableau which is going to define your strategy going forward so i'm really excited about terramara and i think it's going to be a good game i'm also going treasure 
your positives I agree with, the modular nature, the building up your own thing, apart from theme, I really think it's a tired theme. I uh, don't think they've done it very creatively. Take resources, turn them into cards. There's not too much exciting going on there. But really to me, the fact that you can craft your own path, you feel like you're making your own thing or finding your own way is what definitely makes Terramar a treasure for me, Sean. And I expect that Quinned are going to be getting a knock on the booth when we get there. Yeah, I would imagine so. Okay, so my first game of the episode is Sorcerer City, designed by Scott Caputo from Druid City Games, playing one to six players. So we are all wizards or something, Ronan, as you like to say. They li- now, we can start, before you explain it, they literally couldn't think of anything else, no? <laughs> the theme that works for any set of mechanisms you want to throw together, we're all wizards and we're doing something. That's what you went for. Lads, it's supposed to be a joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so Ronan's, Ronan's played these cards early on this one. So, okay, we are wizards and we are tasked with building and rebuilding Sorcerer City. Apparently that's a yearly task. And we're also working to fend off or mitigate against marauding monsters. Each player is going to have a set of. You keep, you keep plugging away at making this theme work. Go on. I'm enjoying this. Sisyphean this task. So each player is going to have a set of starting tiles per player. And in the middle, you're going to have vendor tiles, reward cards, and as I said, those monsters. The game is going to be played over five rounds, and each round is going to have. Prepare, build, score, influence, and buy, prestige, and cleanup. So to prepare is simply shuffle your tiles. The build is where the main crux of the game is, and that's where you're going to get two minutes. The sand time is going to be flipped, and you're going to have those two minutes to place the tiles and build the city. You're matching things with each other, and you're trying to complete goals where one tile will show how the tile should be arranged and connected, and the goals are going to allow you to collect things like money, influence, magic, and prestige with the amount linked to how many tiles of the requisite type you chain together. There are also monster tiles chucked into the mix, and they're going to change what you do or hamper you in some way. Then you're going to move on to scoring what you've got, and you're going to, as I said, get those rewards for chaining those tiles together. Moving on to the influence and buy. So your influence score dictates who goes in what order with the most first and they're going to get some sort of reward and they're going to get first dibs at the rewards then you get to spend money to buy tiles from the market to increase or enhance your city and future turns you then get prestige tokens based on how many how many prestige you earned in the in the round before and then you clean up with all your tiles returned and monsters for that round added the most prestige wins sorcerer city ronan it's a little bit abstract but I think that you're going to enjoy this thing. Are you sure it's a 2019 release? <laughs> That's what it says on it. It's on W. Eric Martin's list, so I'm blaming him again. It looks like a 1989 release. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. It looks like somebody's just added different colours to Carcassonne tiles. and With a crayon? Away, yeah, with a crayon. In the dark? Uh, if you actually get close to the tiles, there are actually sort of the prints of cities, and actually there is a design on them. But from afar, they look they look terrible. It really does look like a home design game that's been put into like a, a GCSE class or something. <laughs> so it looks dated. There is an aspect I might like, but I'm going to stay negative. See, I started down that path. <laughs> is there a worry that the rich get richer? 
The fact that if you make 20 money, you get an extra buy, so you get to get better tiles into your deck. The fact that if you've scored lots of points, you then get a prestige award, which makes you more powerful for the next turn. Is it going to snowball if you start well that you're going to carry on going? Obviously hard to tell from afar, but those little rules like that, and I know there's a little bit of a catch-up mechanism, but it didn't seem enough to me. Yeah, and I think couple that with, for me, two minutes actually seems quite a lot of time. It doesn't seem like, I think it's 12 tiles you start with, maybe you're going to end the game with 20 tiles. Two minutes to place 20 tiles, and if you're doing better than the other players, so you're not under that much pressure, I don't think you're going to be under pressure to make mistakes, is what I'm saying. So yeah, I think you could be right. I'm laughing at you there, because I thought it was loads to think about in two minutes. We took the different view on this. I was looking at it going, that is going to be... Because especially when you get monsters in and the tiles start interacting with each other in funny ways, and you look to avoid certain patterns, I was thinking two minutes were standing tight and that you were going to hate it, and I was going to quite like that aspect. But I think we've flipped. There we have. <laughs> well, you're, you're more the expert on this type of game, so I, I, don't, I tend to avoid them like the plague. So yeah, it's not it's not my expertise. So maybe maybe two minutes is. Oh, we're both guessing. Who knows? This is definitely one where you're gonna have to try it out and go. Oh, that was ages or it wasn't. Who knows? Anything else for you to consider, Sean? I was. Yeah, you know, I'm getting close to summing up. Basically, okay. I, I was just gonna muse on. Do monsters upset the apple cart enough, or is it too much? I think the balance of them is going to be really important. I was going to mention that the, you do have three magic transformation cards that you can spend. So if you're not done well in an area that you really needed to do well, you can transform something, one of your other point scorers into that one. So there's, there's little ways to sort of fiddle around with your score and try and get yourself the, back the monsters. The my concern was, are you going to, are they balanced? Like, is there a chance of getting, because they are quite varied in what they do. And some of them just jump and cover one tile. Some of them start affecting loads of tiles around them. Mm. If you drew out three dragons or something, you'd be quite annoyed. It's like the opposite of Dark Domains. You'd be quite annoyed drawing out all the... Yeah. I, again, hard to tell, but I wasn't sure we're looking at them that they were all... Like, I feel like if I got a fairy, I'd be quite happy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Randy, go on. What are, your, what are your thoughts on Sorcerer City? Yeah, this is... The sort of thing, you're right, the real time, the being stressed, the having to get things done quickly is usually something that I like in a game. In this case... There's just nothing there to draw me in. The theme is so bad. I mean, you might as well make it an abstract. It looks so bad. The scoring and everything is so bland. Even the monsters, I wasn't getting excited looking at them. Their artwork, they're all gold. They've all got the same artwork. They just, nothing hooked me. I feel like there was a big lump of bait there waiting to hook me, but they forgot to put a hook on the end of the line and I was just nom, nom, nom. And, and then just drifted away. Happy to try it. This is one that is not far on one on the side of the fence, but it does come down as a trap for me. Yeah, it was it was always going to be a tough sell for me, being a real-time game. It's not really something I enjoy, as I said. I think the look of the game, the generic theme that's been sort of tacked onto it, all kind of pushes me down a path where I'm, really, I'm not really looking forward to it. There are aspects that I do like, and I like to see that you can see what's coming up and you can sort of plan for, like you can see what monsters, you can see what tasks you have to do and what, and what you're going to get points for. So you can, that's all stuff you can see and you can work towards when you're buying tiles, etc. But so a little bit of control there, but ultimately it has to be a trap for me. But uh, yeah, I'll certainly give it a go. 
This is a funny little episode from you, Sean. I think you might have been having an episode when you planned your... <laughs> like, you chose a real-time tile layer. I did, and then I chose a minis game, which is coming up now. I wouldn't stop there. This is just a raft of weird choices, but don't worry, listener. You will you will discover for yourself as we go through. I went for a boring old queen game. I'm really feeling quite sad and boring. I'm looking at your list. Uh, what what queen game did you go for, sir? How how professionally introduced of you. It was Runestone, Sean, their big release for this year at Essen. It's two to four players, 60 minutes, coming from noted designer Rudiger Dorn, who did Istanbul and Goa and Karuba and Las Vegas and a raft of other games. Queen themselves are probably Germany's biggest publisher. They're going to have a huge area, as they always do at Essen. Shogun, Fresco, Lancaster, Alhambra and dozens and dozens more. Runestones is a deck builder slash breaker in that you're taking cards in, but you're also throwing cards out as you go. We are all druids summoning creatures to help us build artifacts in order to claim runestones, and via that we will score victory points. There is a market of six cards on offer to us. We're going to have a hand of four cards. From that hand of cards, and they can be one of four different colours, we choose a colour and we generate a certain amount of power in that colour. Using that colour, and it doesn't matter what they are, we buy cards from the market and it's the position in the market that counts as to how expensive the card is. They flow along from left to right and the cheapest one's always on the right as normal. And it doesn't matter what color the cards are and what color I'm spending, I just have power and I spend it and that's how I add to my deck. However, the other thing I can do on my turn is I can play cards for their abilities and whenever I play for abilities, I must play two cards. The powers on those cards are gonna let me do things like get more cards into my deck, just score me straight out points, but mostly they're going to get me or allow me to swap gems around. Again, there's four colors of gems. They're the same colors as the card colors we've mentioned. And there's also a wild color and wild cards, which you can add to any set. Why am I getting all these gems in using these powers? Because I'm gonna use those gems to make artifacts. I'm gonna pay a certain number of gems of a certain color. When I take the artifact, I'm going to take a bonus. I'm gonna put the artifact I've made into one of two rows on my board. And whenever I choose to, I can choose to hand in two or more artifacts from the same row up to a maximum of five. And that's gonna get me pyramidal scoring, depending on how many I hand in, up to a maximum of 15 VP for five artifacts at once. That's also going to allow me to take runestones. I can have a maximum of four runestones at any one time, and they will unlock some incredible all-game-breaking powers. So I'm building up my deck in order to get gems, to get artifacts, and with the artifacts, they score me VP, and also let me take these runestones for crazy powers. When a player scores 65 victory points, gets there on their turn, that's the end of the game, everyone now hands back in all the artifacts they have left on their row. So they're all going to score you points as normal, whether you hand them in or not. You just won't get runestones if you haven't done it. And you're going to score a handful of points for the gems you have left over. And whoever scored most points will be the winner of runestones. Sean, it's a queen game, which means the rule book's great. Everything looks clear. Everything's got great iconography. I'm not loving the look of runestones, though. It's not drawing me in that well. The central board looks a bit cluttered and a bit, a little bit messy to my eye. And especially when you bungle the, the gems into the centre, you're supposed to where you're supposed to store them. And the artwork, it all kind of looks a bit stock artworky kind of thing. Like you've kind of stuff you've seen before. It's not doing anything new or impressive. Correct. Now we're talking about the artwork or the game there. <laughs> we'll get on to the game we'll get on to the game 
So <laughs> let's let's break it down. So there are three things you're trying to do. You're trying to sort of get cards into your deck. You're trying to get the artifacts onto your board and then trade in the artifacts to get the rune stones. I think two of those processes are very simple and almost too simple, i.e. the deck building aspect and the getting the artifact. Yeah, I, th- I think the only agony of choice that they're really looking at is that when you're choosing to play two cards for their powers, the highest one's going to go. And that's where you should be agonising. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it in the hand of four cards. You know, I, I want to buy cards. I need to because I'm going to lose a card this turn. You know, how often are you going to get hand of cards out that you go, oh, I've got this many different combinations that make me enough gems? It's just going to be, I choose those to sell, therefore these are the two that are left. Then there's no choice there. I'm playing both of them, and the highest one goes. And for a deck destroyer, or whatever we call that mechanism to work, you really have to agonise over the cards that you're getting rid of. And I'm not feeling it here, Sean. I'm feeling that every choice seems to be very easy. That lends itself to quick play, but... Does how much does it pull you in? It doesn't at all, right? That is exactly it. it. Doesn't pull you in, from what I can see, and it just it, it makes, as I said, that those those first two steps, it makes the process really just really lackluster. And then when you get to the rune stones, which is why I think the the game gets a little bit more interesting with those game breaking powers, and you can chain them together to give yourself this like super tableau of, of excellent powers and then you which is your tableau and that's when it gets a little bit interesting but that's kind of like the end game and you've been you've been kind of plowing through the dirge to get there you're using a lot of very negative words in plowing through dirge <laughs> we're supposed to like hide how we're gonna go some way but clearly by episode three of these we're just like good bad bad good right so I did mention quick pace though. Yes, the, the the other side of what you're saying is the fact that turns will just go, and you're constantly involved. It's bang, 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 bang. It's your turn again. It's your turn again. It's your turn again. You'll barely have time to look at your four cards. The good news in that is because to me there seems to be almost zero player interaction. You are slightly racing to beat each other to certain things, but everything's getting refilled. The artifacts are getting refilled, the cards are getting refilled, so therefore, are you really racing each other, or are you just waiting until it's your turn, you look at what's available and take the ones that suit you? Yeah, you aren't interacting at all. Maybe someone grabs that runestone that you really wanted, but that's really it, Ronan. I mean, I'm ready to sum up, to be honest. I got that. I, th- I feel like we need to get you some sugar <laughs> over there, because th- things, things aren't going well. I wonder which way you're going to go on runestones. I was really excited when I heard the premise of this game, Ronan. It's a deck builder combined with like a collection game, combined with these earth-shattering powers that you build your own tableau, all things that I love. But I think just the simplicity of it just kind of pushed me away. And it was just the whole process was too easy and not enough thought, not enough interaction. So I'm going to have to say that Runestones for me is a trap. This is an on-site treasure because it's going to be easy to learn. You're going to have a good time. You're going to enjoy your hour long of playing and you're going to go, oh, that was a lot of fun. Do you know what? I'm going to get a copy of this. And to me, I think you'll bring it home. And after two or three more plays, you'll be like, 
yeah, I still played exactly the same game as I had fun with back in the halls and I'm not having that much fun with it anymore because there's no interaction, because you're playing with a limited set of cards, because the the runestone powers are all the same. There's eight of them, but you can use four every, every game if you get the maximum out. I can't see why this needs to be in my collection. I am going to wait and see this in a board game cafe, put it off and enjoy my play of it. And then, to be honest, not worry about playing it again for another six months. So I'm also going Trap Sean, but I think it will be fun to play in the halls. Fair enough, Ronan. Okay, we, we promised you a minis game. Here's the minis game. It is Combat Arena coming from Games Workshop. Two to four players. This game is set in the future, where players are going to fight in gladiatorial combat using unique skills, strengths, and strategies to win. This re-implements a former game called Gore Chosen. So what you have, you have an arena board broken up into hexes, and you're going to choose your gladiator. There are two phases to every round. There are prepare where each player is going to get five cards, and then you are going to start fighting. When you start fighting, one player is going to turn over what's called the initiative deck. If the, When the card is flipped, if your character's emblem is there, then you get to take an action. And your actions are move, where you're going to move a particular amount of spaces dictated by the card you play, and it will also tell you what direction you can finish. You can attack... You're going to check your attack zone on your player boards and eventually roll the amount of dice as dictated by your player card. Or you can move up on an energy field, and we'll talk about that now. Energy is going to dictate how many cards go into the initiative deck with your emblem on there. So the more cards that you have in that deck, obviously the more actions you're going to get in a round. The characters all have different abilities on their sheet. Some attacks work in different ways for each character. And as you take wound counters, you're going to draw wound cards, which are all different as well, and give you different penalties. And effectively, the last person standing is going to win a combat arena. Ronan, you have effectively played this game, I believe, because you have played War Chosen. I have. I feel mm. like it's it's changed a small amount, so mm-hmm. I'm not sure I should go first. <laughs> maybe you should give some of your ideas, and then maybe I'll give some thoughts. All right. Well, okay. So one of the things I thought, this it's quite a small board, so it's going to encourage like a full-on bloodbath. There's not a lot of escape space. There are some spaces that block and that you can't go on to, but generally I think it's just going to be an absolute slap fest. Does that sound about right for Gore Chosen? I believe Gore Chosen only had melee attacks. And my understanding is Combat Arena, the main change they've done is they've got some slight ranged ones. They and have, Gore Chosen yeah. really did end up being, right, we're in a corner here, slapping at each other. The person who had like a big axe on a chain might stand back a little bit. But this one seems like there'll be slightly more movement, but you're right, the board is very small and limited. So I flip back and forth about the way that the activations happen. I like the thought of the initiative deck where it's, as I always say, a bit of theatre. Ronan, bit of theatre where the cards oh these turnover over. cards and this is theatre but poor Australia oh no no fine <laughs> so you turn over the card oh it's my emblem I get to go but I think it gives as many problems as it solves you're still at the mercy of the draw and there's no way to plan ahead so everything you do is completely reactionary so you might have zero goes until the last four cards if you've got four cards in the deck and then you, all your goes go up and at once. I'm not sure if I, I, I like that or don't like it, man. 
To be honest, when you're adding it to that many dice rolls, it's definitely not the most random part <laughs> of the game. <laughs> but, it, but you're right, it does create that theatre because when you suddenly realise, oh, that person has got three cards of the final four remaining, although it might feel like a disadvantage to have your cards come out, everyone realises, okay, I really don't want to annoy that person because they can attack me three times in a row now. So it does add slightly to, to your thoughts about who to attack around the table. Okay, so a couple of issues that stood out for me. One One's a very obvious one in that there is a card in there and it's called Headshot. Is there not even a boom in that? <laughs> a boom headshot. You can draw that randomly. And what happens, depending on how many wound tokens you've got on your character sheet, that dictates to another player who's rolling for you when the headshot comes out, how many dice they roll. If they roll a six at all, you're gone. You're out of the game. And that feeds in... To my other. Now, you, you can do stuff on your turn. Even once you're gone, you can come back and you can do a revenge attack, but you can't win the game, effectively. You're gone. You, you cannot win that game. So your interest in the end result is slightly dampened. What that feeds into is that you seem to be able to sustain a lot of damage, and most of the cards don't seem to be able to deal that much damage. So I... I'm worried that this game is going to outstay its welcome. I think when you've got four players in there, they're not all going to be attacking equally, so it's not all going to finish equal. It's pretty quick. <laughs> oh, is it? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't hang on that, because turns are so quick and so simple that it's just rolling. The whole elimination thing. Honestly, trying to judge this alongside the other games in this episode is is pointless and trying to judge it on the same standards and looking for fairness and and your ownness and stra- this is not what this game is this game is do you fancy grabbing some minis throwing them down and playing very very quickly and almost whoever wins is random but we'll get to abuse each other it's like a beer keg that's <laughs> it is not a refined wine Okay, so with with uh, sort of one one foot in the camp of knowledge, Ronan. For the first time in my life, yeah. Combat arena, treasure or trap? So I played Gore Chosen. I played it after I played Underworlds, Shadespire, and Night Vault, and well, Dread Frames Lines had just come out. Mm-hmm. And I thought this is what the system they took and evolved to make Underworlds, and it has evolved, and it's a much better game for that evolution. I can't understand why they re-implemented it. And then I started thinking, well, why have they re-implemented it? Well, it fits into this set of games of the exclusives that they did over in America that we can't actually get in the UK of Blitz Bowl, where they took Blood Bowl and really simplified it, and Labyrinth of the Necrons, where they took Space Hulk and really simplified it. And this feels like their, whatever it is, Kill Team, or whatever, you know, and really simplified that back to Combat Arena. The other two worked, and they were just, you know, when I read the rules, I was like, mm, I'm not sure, too simple. But they actually worked as games. Having played Gore Chosen, it's not as good as those other two. And it really is for families and for preteens and even younger than preteens. It's for like six, seven, eight year olds who are interested in this sort of a game. And this is what I'd buy them and be like, well, here you go. Because no matter how elite I think I am, the fact is I could get unlucky in the initial deck in the rolls and you might win. And I haven't been having to pull my punches. That's just the way the game goes. And it's quick enough that you're not going to get bored. And then I'm going to discover if you like this sort of a game, 
and not having spent £400 on minis and painted them and got all excited and now I'm going to get upset with you and steal your favourite toy because you won't play Warhammer that I spent hundreds of pounds on. So if you're looking for this game for families, for total, total beginners to game in, it will work on that level. But a trap for me, if I did want to play this, I would definitely play Underworlds, which is a much better game. Yeah, I think you have to be in the right mindset, absolutely, to play this one. My thoughts going into it and having not listened to Roland's well-reasoned sort of argument there is that it was going to be too light for minigamers and too random for board gamers, so I didn't really know where it sat, but Roland's explained that to some degree. For me, I I think I want a bit more control, where even in a skirmish game, even in a, a random game like this, and I think the one that knocked me off the fence onto the side of Trap was that sort of headshot card that can knock you out of the game, even even if the game is short. So just a slight trap. I still think I'd have a bit of fun playing it, but I wouldn't buy it. So that is Combat Arena. Lovely. Let's move on to an obscure European Euro. This is more a sort of happy play, Sean. And it's Aquatica. It's a one-to-four play. This is a start of a run of 45-minute games, which we didn't realise, but when I started doing the research, I was like, they're all 45 minutes long. This one is as well. It's from Ivan Tuzovsky, and I think it's his first game, and it's from Cosmodrome Games, who've also done First Contact and Katum City. Sorry, Rona, can I just jump in? It's 45 minutes how long it takes for your dinner to get ready. Uh, I'm really confused now. Why? Because obviously you're picking all these 45-minute games, so obviously you're, you're filling some time scale there. That's the general just eat delivery time scale. <laughs> Do you know why I was thinking that? Because I just went out for a walk with the girls and Rachel started cooking dinner. And I said, how long? She went, it'll be 45 minutes, love. And I was like... How do you know? What, what have you, how do you know how long it took for Rachel to cook the dinner? <laughs> I'm well confused now. Right. Hence me pausing. I'm going to get back to wherever game this is. It's a Quatico yes, short. Yeah. It takes 45 minutes. Okay. Each player is the leader of an underwater civilization. They're going to look to recruit characters into them. They're going to explore the depths of the sea and they're going to train some mantas, some manta rays to work for them in order to score the most points. You're going to start with a hand of cards. You're going to play a character cards for the actions which are on them. You're also going to use mantas, which you start with four and you can train more to help boost those actions. And also you may well have explored depths, which you can then exploit and push up in order to raise up the action that you've chosen from the character card in your hand. So what can you do with these character cards? Well, you can recruit more characters. There is another game with a sliding market in which you take from the board and it slides down and they become cheaper. If you wish to buy them, you have to generate coins by playing that card, by using any mantas which generate coins and by exploiting any depth which generate coins, which we're definitely going to get to. How do we get these depths? You can either buy them or conquer them. Again, there is a market of them in two levels. When you buy and you do that by making coins from your card mantas and depths and spending them or by making power from your cards mantas and depths and spending that you take a depth and it gets set at a particular depth this area and it's put into one of five slots on your board and where it sits it's got a little power and that may be blank or it might give you things you can do it may give you as i've already mentioned access to coins access to power 
or it may actually allow you to take different actions. And when you use those things, you push that card up so you go to the next depth down. It may be blank, so you cannot then carry on using that card until you take one of your actions to take a raise action, and they will allow you to move up your cards. Now you can move past particular bonuses and action icons if you want to, or I think most usually you're gonna be using it to move past these blank things to access the more powerful bonuses you can get deeper down onto these cards. Now, when you push these depth cards up, when they get all the way up, there's no longer any actions on them. But at that point, you do get to train a Manta and you get an extra Manta into your school and it tells you which type you get and they will then allow you to continue boosting your actions. Also, there's a set number of victory points on there. But you're not gonna score those points until you use the actual score action, which takes that fully used card out, puts it in your score pile, frees up one of your five slots again, and as I said, allows you to score that card at the end of the game. The final action you can take is scouting, and that basically you can do to make more locations available to you and to make locations that are already in play easier to conquer so you have to generate less power to do them. The game is also going to have public goals, which are set for your beginner games, or they can be advanced, and they do get quite advanced. And they're going to want you to have particular types of locations, a certain number of mantas, a particular types of cards in your hand at the end of the game, whatever it may be. But once you achieve them, you then have to send a manta in to grab it for you, and you will score a set number of points for having done so. The game is going to end either when someone has done all four public goals, when either of the decks runs out, and your points are going to be your scored locations, the goals you've achieved, and any cards you have left in hand. Sean, Aquatica, not the last game we're gonna talk about with this look and theme of nautical and going out to the sea and exploring the depths, but they do them very differently and they have very different looks and very different takes on it. With this first one, how do you like the look of Aquatica? Right, and I, I'm drawn to that theme for some reason. I, I really liked the look of Oceanos. There is going to be another one coming in this episode, as you as you alluded to, that has that sort of look and feel to it. And this one absolutely looks stunning. The artwork is beautiful. The components, the little mantas, manta rays that you use, really, really gorgeous looking game. And it drew my eye immediately. I was already looking at this one just because of that, Ronan. 100% with you, Sean. It looks amazing. It is abyss-esque. And I think when you explain the play, it can sound a little abyssy, collecting characters, collecting locations, but it does seem to play very differently. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start on the variety so the variety in the game seems to stem from obviously the, the cards that you can bring into your tableau but the objectives there seems to be a lot of different objectives you start with the ones printed on the board for the base basic game and then there's lots more that come in even players there's a good variety of, of your player characters that give you that sort of unique power it's a good start good artwork and a little bit of variety thrown in there Indeed, it's pulling you in. And the mechanical hook for me was that getting it, those cards in and then exploring the depths and pushing them up and each use is unique and then having to actually spend actions to push them further to get yeah, the whole idea of I'm progressing here. I've got something that's mine. I'm trying to use it cleverly to trigger off different things. And once I actually get it all the way through and I've used it up, it's not just used up, I then get to score it. And I'm considering all those things I'm looking at what locations to bring into my tableau. Oh, that rise mechanism is 
just got me absolutely sort of what's the right word uh, frothing frothing yes frothing at the mouth for for it i just love the thought of that because not every time when you raise that particular card on on your player board and do something some of them i've got blank spaces some of them give you an action some of them trigger off on other cards around them some of them trigger another in other areas of the game really interesting absolute cornucopia of actions that stem from that one mechanism it has me intrigued Ronan. A fruidomare of bonuses. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, and to me, what that says is that this is open to sort of players who don't play that many games because each of the mechanisms is quite simple, but also may have the depth for for players who are deeper in because it offers that combo possibility and that idea to chain things together and then choose the right manta and choose the right thing not necessarily for the for what is obvious it gives me but also moving on the secondary things it gives me and how that can move on and work on my character power i feel like there's layers of gameplay here albeit it's only a 45 minute game let's not go too far yeah and then again that's not going to outstay its welcome one of the things that i don't like that this game actually has in it is that race element I'm not always a fan of, of that right i like to build up at my own pace and i like to be able to choose what i want to do a little bit with a little bit more freedom this kind of says right here's the four things you're aiming at go on crack on do it as quick as you can i'm not always a big fan of that well you're wrong about that <laughs> i know you so like that's it all I, know you, I like that in the game i, I like it. i know you do it's actually in a quick game it's clear this is what we're trying to do let's not mess around let's not have this game last too long there's a game slightly later that i'm going to diss for not having this so i have to give props to this one for having it fair enough okay so to sum up ronan on aquatica for me it was a treasure as soon as i saw that that float mechanism in there but i think there's is a little treasure of a game i think there's there's things chaining off each other. There's there's variety in there. The art and components are great, and I'll put up with the race element. So for me, it's a it's a treasure all the way. All of those plus, I like the race element. So it's an even bigger heap of sunken treasure for me, Sean, which I intend thoroughly to net and pull home with me. So what we have next is deep blue. Along the along the same theme, and it's designed by Asker Harding Granud and Daniel Skjold Pedersen, and coming from Days of Wonder, two to five players. And a very, very light theme on here that we have found a map of some underwater wrecks, and we are essentially diving to recover treasure from those wrecks. This is a push-your-luck game. What you have in the middle of the table is a map board with wreck tiles placed on the board, and boats in player colour. You have a set of base cards, which are multi-use, which have a primary and secondary use, and these are going to be used for sailing, recruiting, or diving. On a turn, you're going to do one of the following actions. You can recruit crew. You can pay money, that's depicted on one of your cards, to bring in crew to your tableau, and crew are going to offer bonuses or protection during your diving, or they can help you sail further. Talking about sail, sail is another one of your actions. You're going to move around the board to those wreck sites. You're going to place a boat 
on a scouting site at the wreck. And those scouting sites are going to give you a bonus for your dive, whether it's more money if you bring up a certain type of treasure or a bit of protection against the things that can go wrong during your dive. You also get to rest and you're able to pick up all the cards that you've spent and put them back in your hand. And lastly, you're going to dive. And this is the main part of the game, is you're going to dip into a bag, you're going to draw crystals out, and each of them is a type of treasure or a hazard. And the hazards in the game are sea creatures that might be attacking you, or oxygen being wasted, what have you. And you keep going until you decide to stop. Or the game tells you you have to stop because you've run out of oxygen, or a sea creature's done something horrible to you. During the dive, you're going to use crew cards to either score points or to fend off those hazards. One last thing is adjacent ships can join the dive for free if they are just adjacent and they pay people decide to put them there, but they don't get to use the bonuses. You keep going until four of the sunken city tiles are turned over and the most treasure at the end of Deep Blue wins the game. Ronan, similar theme, you're diving, although this one is a very, very much on a lighter scale. 100%. I think going into this and gamers going into this need to forget some of their expectations for a Days of Wonder game. This is a 45-minute game aimed at 8+. plus. That means it is family weight. It is for adults to play with children or children's play together. So I think that's the angle. Certainly I'm coming from, Sean, and which Days of Wonder will need to get their perspective audience from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the game, it, we give props to them. The Days of Wonder games are always gorgeous. They're always beautiful. They always use that same style of art. But this one in particular, I'm, I'm drawn to because, as I said, I, I really like that underwater diving, nautical theme on games. I think it is a really, really simple game. And if you are thinking that it's in even a gateway, it's not even a gateway game, really, because the choices are too simple and too obvious for that. Having said that... I think it still offers a little bit more choice than maybe some of their recent ones, like The River is the one that's popping into my mind, Ronan. That was a gamer's game, Sean. That was a proper Euro. They had a lot going on. (laughs) Yes. This is an advanced Ink and Gold. An advanced, very pretty Ink and Gold, where you have a bit more control. It has a spatial aspect to it, which I'm not convinced by, because who's going to go sailing off by themselves? You're going to want to be part of every dive. So I feel like everyone's just going to go together. It may just have made more sense for them to have just a trail that you just go along and go, because I can't see that you're going to be using that grid very extensively. So I think it could have been simplified there. I think also I do like the fact that it's very interactive. So the captain's drawing and everyone then gets to play their cards. You're not doing much of the interaction though. You simply have the cards that claim for that red gem or you don't. So it's going to have to be played at a clip. It's going to have to move along, and you can't really draw this one out. Yeah, I think there are some simple tactics in there, Ronan. Either like stay with each other or go out alone. So if you go out alone, people aren't piggybacking on your dives. But yeah, but sure, sure, sure. Group. If you're playing four player and you go out by yourself, and those guys stay close together, they'll be in three or four dives, and yeah, you'll exactly. be in one of yeah, every four. Yeah, so yeah. it just it doesn't just mm. set out a trail of tiles. Don't make it this multi-directional thing. Okay, and obviously the other simple tactic is to protect or gamble on points. So do you get crew in that are going to protect your dive or crew in that are going to turn those sort of harder 
harder to get gems into points that you don't actually score for unless you do have those crew running. And I yeah. think that, that that's, that's a no-brainer for me. It's a very simple choice that I would probably be able to make quite easily without even thinking about it. But as you said, Ronan, a family weight game where sort of James might not necessarily get that first though, and he would learn, oh, well, obviously the crew that turned the green and purple crystals into points, no-brainer. So I'll do that next time. Unless you get hit by a load of anchors a couple of times in a row and then it wasn't the right thing to do and that's i think part of it is there is going to be no correct strategy and the fact is if i load up and all i've got is green cards in my hand and i'm taking that risk i might win or i might lose that's how you play ink and gold that's how i'll be playing deep blue to be honest with you <laughs> and i'll be acting up to that and you creating the fun at the table with something light-hearted like this and going right Bring me that green crystal. Bring it on. Give me those green crystals. That's all I'm after. Just give me those green. I don't care. Anything else happens. I'm staying until they come out. And obviously you'll get laughed at sometimes because it will go wrong. And sometimes you'll laugh at everyone else because it will go right. And you have to play this in the right spirit, I would say. Okay, Ronan. So treasure or trap for Deep Blue? For what people have come to expect from a Days of Wonder game, I think many people will be disappointed. Having had to look at it, shift my perspective... I'm happy to play this and I'm going to give it a treasure because I think that we can have a lot of fun around the table having a laugh and, and gambling as hard as possible and, and laughing and pointing at each other and then moving on very quickly. I don't think they've done everything correctly for it, but I think it's enough that it'll be fun for 45 minutes. So for me, for a Days of Wonder game, I think it's actually a step up, no, not in complexity, but in just production, and it is—it's a game that I can I can find a way to enjoy. I've been very disappointed recently with Days of Wonder and then some of their products, and I just didn't understand where they were going. This one, at least, I know where they should be going with it. They should be aiming this at the family market. For me, it would be a trap on my own, but playing with my family, it's a treasure. So I'll give it—I'll give it a tentative treasure as well, Ron. And that's deep blue. Two very tentative treasures for it. I like that. <laughs> Tentaculative treasures. No, that's terrible. That is awful. Okay, should we just go on to the second part because it doesn't get any better than that here? <laughs> I see what you did there. I'm out. <laughs> We're into the last six games of this year's Treasure Hunt, and the next one to come up for you is Paris New Eden. Two to four player, 45 minute game. Again, designed by Florian Grenier, who designed Tokyo Ghoul and Octorage, or Octorage? I don't know. Octorage? I'm going Octorage, good. And Ludovic Malblanc, who did Cyclades, Conan, Mr. Jack, Cash and Guns. Think about that for a second, how different those four games are. Cyclades, Conan, Mr. Jack, and Cash and Guns. So. Who knows what his next game's going to be? And it's published by Matago, Kemet, Innis, Cyclades, Captain Sona, and so forth. There's been a plant-based apocalypse that seems to have happened very quickly, and lots of the world has been overrun by vegetation. We are surviving in this new green world, and we are in Paris, and we're going to be looking to build a refuge, survive events, and field our people over four rounds, which equal the four seasons of one year. 
We're going to roll dice at the beginning of the game, and those dice can be placed certain numbers according to the player count onto five different locations on the main board. And on a turn, we're going to go to one location and we're going to draft one dice and take the action off that location. Now, the die face that we take is going to be a certain type of five different survivors or a wild, and they're going to help us in the next phase when we try and deal with events. But the actions we take during this phase, when we actually just take the die, it doesn't matter what the die is, Here's what they are. In the tower, we can cancel events. Now, there can be one more event than the number of cancellations there can be for each round. So you get to choose which event is going to be face up, and you'll see how events work in a minute. Basically, you can plan towards dealing with them, and you'll score points for doing it. So you're canceling certain VP choices. When you go to the bridge, you're going to be able to claim mission cards. Now, these mission cards are either going to be buildings, which are going to have survivors in them, which you're going to be able to add to your tableau, which will help you deal with further events, or they're going to be VP endgame chances to score for having done certain things. There's a restaurant you can go to. When you go to the restaurant, you get to take a can, and cans can help you feed your people, which again will score you points at the end of each round. Or you can go to the city centre where you can collect equipment, which again will help you deal with these events. The last place is the train station. When you go to a train station, you get a permanent survivor token, which you're going to be able to use moving onwards to go into your buildings and help you deal with stuff. Now for the buildings, there are five different types and they are related to the five different types of survivors. You now get to draft buildings. They're going to be laid out and you check and see who has got the strongest presence in each of the five different types of survivors there are and whoever's got the strongest presence is going to get first choice of the buildings of that type so you can get tinker buildings whoever's got most tinkers both in tokens they've collected from the train station and die faces is going to get first choice of those and they're going to give you specific powers either immediate or ongoing for the rest of the game there are farmer buildings you can take and they're going to help you feed your people and there are three others and they're all going to help you deal with events they're linked to brawlers and what have you then we check the event. If you can deal with the event using your survivors and equipment that you've collected or you've got in your buildings, you're going to score a certain number of victory points. You then check a chart, see how many survivors you have in your refuge. If you can feed all of them using your farmers and also any cans you've collected, you're also going to score VP. But there's no punishment for not doing those two things. It's just point scoring chances. At the end of the game, you're going to see how many points you scored by doing those things. You're going to add up any points from those mission cards you've collected, plus some tinkerer buildings will give you a chance for VP. And at the end of the four rounds, whoever's done that most successfully will be the winner of Paris New Eden. Sean. So the die face matters from where you when you draft these dice, and also where you're taking them from matters. It's a little bit, now this is a stretch, but a little bit Tresmajestus light. Wow. If all the games you thought you were going there, that that didn't even feature in the running. Well, I can't think of many other games where you draft a die and what's on it matters and where it came from matters. I obviously would try to suggest there's more on that, but in this one I thought it was quite a nice little touch in a quick game. Yeah, a very, very quick game and a game where... I'm going to come right out and say it, Roland. A game where I think you've got very, very simple action choices... I think you move on to that draft for the buildings, but am I right in thinking everybody gets a, a building regardless? So you just it just depends what building you get. No, no, there are fewer buildings than there are players. So if you're last or you have no strength in it, then you don't get a building in there. Right, gotcha, gotcha. Rado played it wrong. Shock. It maybe it's different in two players. Yeah, maybe. 
I think definitely in four players you get three buildings. So if you're if you're lowest, you're not going to get one. Right. Okay. So that means that if, yeah, four players and two players are two very very different games. So that's interesting. Well, only if that's true. I might have just made that up. <laughs> no, we tell these people don't put too much weight in what we say, and now you're like, oh, right, well, that's not. No, I don't know. I think that's what it is. <laughs> so it just feels like you're making quite simple decisions. You're doing that draft for buildings, which is which is a simple decision in itself. Like it's obvious. Well, that one's good because it's going to give me two foods, that farmer building, whereas the other one's going to give me another mouth to feed and give me zero food. So, well, I'll take the two food. Thank you very much. It just feels that although I think I'd enjoy playing this game, I'm, I'm, wor- I'm worried about the meat on its bones. It's a 45-minute game. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that in terms of drafting, your secret missions are going to mix that up. And also, of course, you're saying you don't get much choice. Well, yeah, you, you don't get much choice anyway. It's just how important is that to you? Like, do you feel like I definitely need that building because I'm behind and that's the event that's going to happen? Or I'm going to steer it towards that event and that's the. It's all very quick decisions that you're making. But the fact is, the game plays very quickly. So this isn't to be judged alongside longer games. Yeah, but there's no there's no sort of intrigue or like it's it's a very straight up black and white decision. Do I want this or do I want that? So if I really want to, I disagree with you. Fill, I, That's I, what I'm saying. The missions will mix that up. Yeah, but if I want to fulfil my mission, so I'm going to go and I'm going to take a soldier because of the, I need soldiers for my mission. What if the event wants something else? Yeah, exactly. But this it's, it's a very black and white decision. I either take the, that soldier or I take something else. Or if I'm are you saying that every decision we make in games is black and white because you have to choose one or the other? Because we may as well say in every single game, like you have to make a choice. It's a binary choice. What, yeah, uh, yeah, no, but, but what happens is, is, is not interesting. It's like they don't necessarily know what my missions are, so it's a complete gamble whether they take it or not. It, it just doesn't seem uh, interesting or clever to me. In Deep Blue, I'm drafting that player that triggers off red gems rather than the one that drives it. yeah and I don't know which one's going to get drawn from the bag you can say this about an awful lot of games this is yeah. a f- I, I suppose this one it wasn't it excited me I, I think. think you were expecting more yeah I that's was, the problem I was, I'm saying yeah. to you your expectations are too much because each round is 10 minutes it's a quick draft it's then quick draft of the buildings draft dice draft buildings deal with the mm-hmm. event move on draft it's a very quick playing game when I started watching Rado play this through, which is the first time I'd seen it, now the reason, actually, the reason for that is quite interesting because we talk about how we compartmentalize our games. So, okay, not, don't want that because it's that. So, like, if it doesn't play two players, I'm not that interested in it, etc. This one was down uh, pre- predominantly as an auction stroke bidding game. There's very little auction and bidding in this game. Like, you might put those sort of wild players in to make your bid for the tinkerers a bit stronger but that's it it's, it's more of a drafting game as far, as far as i can see so that pushed it away for me when i saw rado playing it brought it back into my scope my field and i thought oh that looks really interesting and then it sort of progressed to where i am now which you're making obvious again you are terrible at acting this episode <laughs> i'll say the amount of interaction a draft is always interactive so you're always concerned what other people are doing. Again, to actually agree with this, like the consequence of what faces are getting taken feels like it can be mitigated by buildings and by going to the train station. So I'm not sure you're going to get an agony in the dice draft, but you're still going to be looking towards it. And But if someone takes that last tinker that you need, it will be, ah, there is interaction there. The event cancelling, I think, will be quite interesting. 
because if someone set up to deal with things with loads of brawlers all the time, well, I'll cancel the brawler events all the time, or delay getting ahead of me, therefore do you have to draft first player and what have you. A tickle of interaction, Sean. Yeah, I definitely think it's an interactive game. It's also, well, we haven't mentioned, I think it's also a stunning game. I love the look of the oh, board. Oh, no. Oh, don't you like oh. it? Oh, I think it's beautiful. The production is, is good, and they've gone for a look. It's just not to my personal taste. I'm not saying it's poorly produced or anything. Mm. I would never choose to have a game with that artwork. I really, oh, I really like it. I really like it. It drew, it drew me in. Do you really like the game, though? And is it a treasure? I don't think so. <laughs> okay, so it will, I think, become quite repetitive, going through the same locations over and over again. And there's only a certain amount of people that you can you can draft. I think it'll be quite obvious that if there's not that many soldiers this turn or not many, that many farmers this turn, they're going to be the ones that everyone goes for first. And I just don't think there's any meat on the bones of this game, or well, not enough for me, even at that 45-minute Ronan's Dinner's time, time frame. I'm going to have to say Trap. Yeah, I love this genre. I love the idea of a dice draft. Trimagestus was a treasure for me because of that, where you made it a trap. This is a treasure for me as well, because I just think it's interactive, and I like the idea, and I hope there is enough. I understand your concerns, but again, in 45 minutes, I think I'm much more forgiving at 10 minutes around than I am for other types of games. And I think I'm in a good mood, and I'm really excited about Essen, so I'm going to go treasure again for Paris New Eden. For giving me enough space to have fun and have a, a small amount of where I go and what strategy I employ. One thing I will say, I actually think I will enjoy playing the game. I think it will just leave me disappointed by the end of it. I, don't th- I think I'll just be left a bit, mm, I wish that had been better. This will be a good one to revisit because, yeah, I think it will probably be coming home with us. So I'm looking forward to to seeing how this goes because although I'm treasure, I can see why it could go wrong and it feels like maybe though you're trapped, you feel like, oh, maybe it could prove itself to you. Yeah, I'm I'm actually looking forward to playing it. I think it'll be an interesting play wherever way it goes. Ronan, I've got an apology to make. You certainly do. I certainly do. from this treasure hunt. (laughs) My ne- my next game, uh, yeah, it's not going to be at the fair by the looks of it, but we'll talk about it quickly anyway. Not that there's much to talk about. The game is a escape- but Sean, there's a rule book and rules videos online. Yeah, so I thought. <laughs> <laughs> escape from the asylum, designed by uh, Martin Nedergaard Anderson, Alexander Peshkov, and Ekaterina Plushkinakova coming from lifestyle board games playing one to six this is an escape room experience where players are going to find themselves wrongly placed in an asylum and they're going to have to make their escape this is a cooperative escape room game in two parts with each part a collection of five stories and players are going to assume the role of a character within this unfolding story there are envelopes to open and it, they promise that the characters are going to have to make life-changing decisions. And that's all we know. It looked as though it was coming to the the fair. And it looked on the Board Game Geek <laughs> page that there was a rule book. But it turned out to be an MP3 with some of the most horrific voice acting I've ever heard. It was Ouch! A, uh, it was a guy in the asylum who'd been put there by his brother, and he wasn't like, oh, I can't believe he's done it. Oh, he's the worst person. I hate him. It was, huh, that bomb's put me in here. Ugh. 
I guess I'll have to escape. That's Scandinavian stoicism. <laughs> you ever watch Icelandic TV? Your daughter's been kidnapped by a killer. Yes. I would have to find her. <laughs> I love it, by the way. I love Icelandic TV, but they don't get very emotional. <laughs> Anyway, the reason we're talking about Icelandic TV is because Escape from the Asylum. Right, what do we know? It's an escape room game. Always with escape room games, I leave it and I wait for reviews because they can be hit and miss with me. And even doing that, I think, is stupid because they're so particular to you, whether you get frustrated by the clues or you really enjoy the clues. Obviously, some people love almost all of them, and I'm one the city in the middle here where some I really like and others I don't. The ones I tend to like tend to give me more than just being an escape room. What you can say for Escape from the Asylum, they are putting together 10 games to get the whole story. So you'll need to buy 10 individual products. They will put you in the roles of perhaps the main protagonist trying to get out, but also in other characters that this protagonist will meet along the way and get their point of view and their perspective and things you've half seen won't be explained during one thing. They'll come up later on in the whole story. A hugely ambitious project, Sean. Yeah, and it was that that really sort of drew me to it. The the fact that you can you play as a character, and it's not you escaping from the asylum. So the bit of role play going in there. What would that character do? So a, a slight different twist on the escape room genre. Definitely, and that's all I've got to say. It's clearly a trap for now because we haven't seen a rule book or a video or anything, but. With the idea, at least you've brought it to my attention. And if I hear more about it further down the road, it will be something that, to definitely have a look into again. When it, when it does come out, it's it's on the radar now. I think the setting and the art looks very good and atmospheric. And I like the thought of, as I said, playing as that character. Uh, one, one to look out for, but it has to be a trap because uh, we just don't know anything about it. So maybe we'll pop along and see, see how far along the path they are at Essen. And that was Escape from the Asylum. When we see it, we'll take another spin around on a carousel, will we? Oh, 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 nice segue. Yeah, thanks. Next game is carousel. Two to four players. 45 minutes, Sean. What? Ding, there goes the microwave. <laughs> they just did not intend this, but here we go. Designed by Antonio Souza Lara. Now, he designed Viral and Esteral 1942, both successful games, but not a name that was familiar to me automatically, and published by Mebo Games. They're also bringing out Porto. They did Viral, Esteril, uh, and they're a big importer of games into Portugal. So, a bunch of siblings are having a competition in order to gain the most customers to win an old carousel. In order to win these customers, they're going to run the carousel once, and whoever's the most successful getting them in gets to keep it. There's a different theme for you. The board is split into two areas, and basically one part of it is a rotating wheel, which is split into sectors with numbered spaces in, and the number of sectors is player number dependent. There'll be four for four players, and two players, and three for three players, basically. Each player gets 14 animal tiles with their colour on and 12 sector cards. Now, these sector cards correspond to the numbered spaces within the sectors. And you're also going to draw out randomly three customers each. And these customers all want to sit on a particular type of those animals, those 14 animal tiles you have. On your turn, there's going to be four phases now in each round. But on your turn, you're going to play an animal and slot card. The slot is going to tell you what number space you're going to put the animal that you've played onto in the sector that's currently in front of you. 
Then you're going to check and see, and everyone's going to check the three customers they've got in front of them and whether that particular set of animals is anywhere in a horizontal or vertical row in the sector that's currently in front of them. And if they are, they will place those animals into play. And if the animals that the customers want are in play, they're going to put those customers on top of those animals, which are going to score points for the players who control or have put those animals into play. Because the next thing that happens is that that wheel rotates around and the sector goes to the next player along. So as you play into sectors, it's going to have lots of different people's slots in and it's the slot that counts where the customer goes. Once you rotate once, you then check again and see if you can score again now that one that's in front of you scores for the customers that are in front of you. And if it doesn't, you just go back around again. Everyone plays an animal on slot card, check to see if you score, rotate once, check to see if you score again. Now, when you gain customers, like I say, they're going to give you VPs and they're going to give you different powers to be able to mix, mix things up, to be able to claim back your cards. Because every time you play a slot card, it gets played out in front of you so people can see what numbers you've played already so you won't be able to go into there. And they're trying to manipulate the board so that you have to send them around a board that they're capable of scoring or so that you must play so that it allows them to score <laughs> by you putting your customers onto their slots. This sounds confusing and I think it will be quite brain burning. Okay, the game will end when any player can't play anymore. So any slot cards they have, all those slots are full up or there's no customers left. Then there are four public objectives which are on the board which are drawn at the beginning of the game and players are going to score if they have achieved those particular objectives and whoever scored the most points by getting customers onto their animals and by completing objectives is going to be the winner of Carousel. Sean, your favourite genre, Thinky McSpatial Thinkerson. Good old abstract Thinky McSpatial Thinkerson. Abstract? It's a carousel! Are we really doing that? Yeah, I know it's turns, and that's cool. That's it's always cool to have a little turny bit, 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 bit turny in the game. That's, that's never if, if I go <laughs> as it turns, will that then make it a thematic game? Obviously, but then I'll hop on the on the game itself. I'll be waiting. <laughs> be flashing a torch in your eyes as we go. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Keep it spinning, running it. It wouldn't spin. <laughs> Anything that rotates is cool. It's just. That's, that's the law. It is the law. That is the law. It's, it started off on a good spinny foot run. So, and what I also liked as well, the thought of, is that you're piggybacking off each other, and you have to be also, at the same time, really careful not to help each other too much. So, it's that sort of push-pull aspect. Do or do I, do I help them? Because they're going to be getting this particular part of the wheel next turn because it will help me maybe as it comes around again i like that aspect of it right now. yeah it's going to be massively interactive and that is going to be part of each player's decision of whether they want to play the game or not because you are not looking at one sector and one set of customers and you are only looking at your class because they're hidden behind the screen but you're looking at everyone else's can you play in a particular sector? Have you already played that card? Okay, you can or you can't. What customers have you got? What animals are there? What is in each sector? What is the right play now? That is a lot, a lot to take in, Sean. A lot to think about. And you have very limited control on each individual sector. So then you have a, a random card draw. So some people are going to be planning this to the oomph degree. Is having that little bit of random a good thing because it's kind of sort of scuppered them a little bit and the mathematicians aren't necessarily going to win? 
or is that just going to make it frustrating for people? I think that from where we are in our perspective, that's impossible to tell. That is just a judgment <laughs> call because really that's one of those those things where this format is limited. You're going to have to sit down and try it. And the level of frustration is going to be based on how hard you've been thinking, how things have gone. Has someone just scuppered your plan by mistake or wherever it might be? It, it's a game that is not like other games. This is nothing like I've seen for this Essen or, or indeed... I can't think of any game quite like it. With this, everything moves round. Someone might point out to me, look, exactly the same as that basic mechanism. Well, for my simple brain, the fact that it spins and we're all adding bit by bit and it's limited where you can add each turn is very different. And oh, I'm loving the idea of it, but I can see what you're saying about the random draw and the frustrations. And this is going to be very hard, I think, for people to decide whether they want to take that plunge or not, whether they want to risk all this thought for not getting a payoff. What are your thoughts in the end for Carousel? I understand the idea behind the game. I just don't see the excitement in this game. It's not my type of game. It's definitely not in my wheelhouse. I would break my brain trying to think two, three, four steps ahead as that wheel continues to turn. And yeah, I just wouldn't be excited to play this one. So for me, it's going to be a trap. But I can see the appeal. I've underlined four times the word niche because this is going to appeal to a certain type of gamer and you're going to know of that type of gamer. Are you one who enjoys an absolute brain explosion of a constantly changing puzzle where you can be messed with but you have to adapt? That level of randomness is my major sort of drawback that I can't fully go into it. But I'm going treasure and I this is definitely what I'm going to buy because I'm so intrigued by it that I almost have to see how good it is. And even if I feel like it is too frustrating and not a great game, the sense of relief at having played it would have been worth the fact that I've purchased it. So Carousel, for me, is a treasure, Sean. Very good. Okay, so I'm going to move on to a small little game. You're not. I'm not. I've done it to myself (laughs) again. I promised I would do nice, simple-to-explain games, so apologies. My game is Pangea, and it's designed by Alexander Jagodzinski coming from Redimp Games, playing one to four players. Now, this game is set in the Great Permian Extinction. And this happened between 299 and 252 million years ago. And essentially, it was the greatest mass extinction on in, in Earth's history. 95% of marine and 70% of terrestrial species were wiped out due to changes in the temperature, meteor impact, and volcano eruptions. And players in this game are going to be species preparing for that catastrophe and essentially fighting for survival. Players are going to choose one one of four species. You have the invertebrates, the reptiles, the amphibians, and the synapsids, each of which has a special ability. The map in the centre of the board is a map of Earth, and it has a supercontinent, but it's divided into regions. Each region has a 0, a 1, and a 2. A 0 can hold all creatures. A 1 and a 2 can only hold one creature each because they're more desirable land space. It also has a food value to sustain the X amount of animals. There are a set of objectives set early on in the game. The actions in the game are going to be based on action points. And as the game progresses, you're going to start with six action points and you're going to progress to seven and then eight. The actions you can actually do, you can adapt 
where you can play an evolution card, which is a permanent bonus, or an adaptation card, which is going to allow you to play those evolution cards, get action points back, or do a bonus action. You can populate, which you're going to place your species on the board. You can migrate. You're going to move your species on the board. And if you move into one of those one or two areas, you're going to trigger a fight. And essentially, it's going to go on the way that the animals are. So if, if a synapsid bowls into an invertebrate, the invertebrate's going to die. As simple as that. You have a survive action, and that is going to move an instinct marker. And we're going to look at that in a minute. And you're going to pay all the action points for each of those actions. And for each type of creature, the action points are slightly different. So going on to the instinct tracks, this is all about looking at the sector cards that are placed around the board. And they are going to essentially allow you to work out where the catastrophe is going to hit. And so there's a little bit of deduction going on here. So you've got to work where it is, and eventually you're going to understand what is going to hit so you can prepare for it. All the while, the doom is moving along, and it is going towards the catastrophe. And whatever the catastrophe is, it's going to kill a certain number of creatures in a certain way. At the end of each round, you check to see if the creatures can be fed. If not... Hunger was going to be placed in there, and all the creatures are going to die in each section. There are three epochs, and every epoch you're going to trigger an event that happens, and the end game is all about the player who has scored the most points for creatures they have left. You must have at least one creature, or you cannot win this game. Of Pangea, or Pangea. Ronan, dominant species, anyone? Nah. <laughs> no, you're not having it. No, I'm not having that. No, That's a load no. of old rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> just because it's got that theme or a very vaguely similar theme, just, no, I'm not having it. Okay, Sean, you made me read this rule book. I got 11 pages of content. <laughs> I watched the video. It was much better. Trust me. 11 pages of content. You love a good content. I think it was page 21 before it told me what actions I can take in the game. This speaks to something. I'll tell you what it speaks to, Sean. For me, it's a pattern in Red Imp games that they create all of the surroundings, all of the flavour and the theme, and they don't bring the heart. And at the heart, they restrict what you can actually do when you play. This game is quite a simple game. It doesn't need to be this long. It shouldn't have this much guff thrown on it. Every single age doesn't have to be called by its actual historical name because it makes it harder to learn. And getting 20 pages into a rule book before you tell me what I can do in the game or how to do it is not the way to go about mm. it. Other companies do it uh, a slightly different way. So obviously it's, it's a labour of love for the designer and they're obviously interested in that period of time and what happened so tell us about the game then at the end let's have like your 10 pages or what have you of this is what actually happened and this is all the stuff that you're going to be seeing if you want to read it but you already know the game now i can read it if i if i choose to so yeah i, I get what you're saying and i completely agree okay <laughs> you just can do five actions 
That's it. It's an action point game. You have a set number of action points. It's like five per round for the first third, then six, then seven. And you do five actions with them. They all cost a different number of action points per species, though. So mm-hmm. for a species, of those five action points, to do one thing will cost them three. But for someone else, it will do one. Yes. That is fully scripting what each species should be doing. Scripting to the point where you're taking away from the decision space of the players. So again, you're restricting the heart of the game that you've made so hard to learn. It just doesn't make sense to me. Why It's not in there for gameplay reasons. It can't be unless they want each species to be played the same way every time it's played. Why have they put that in there? That's actually a very good point. I hadn't really thought of it. I was coming up more that I liked that each each species plays different and has their strengths and weaknesses. But you're absolutely right. Now that I think about it, you are kind of being pushed down the path. You are on, on rails, as they say. Okay. That doom's going to come. Mm-hmm. It could be one of the different types of dooms, and they act in slightly different ways, right? Mm-hmm. But they all wipe out all of the animals in a large swathes of the board. The only way to know where is getting targeted and what the type of doom is is by having that peaky instinct thing and having a look. For one species, that's cheaper than the others. If that one species does it, they will not be putting their cubes in certain areas. Guess what I'm going to (laughs) do? Oh, you're not going to the temperate zones. I'm guessing the temperate zones are empty. The opposite of that is, right, I'm not checking it because you're all just going to piggyback off my hard work and I have limited action points, so I'm not going to spend them on that. Great. Let's play random game of who dies at the very last thing. Because the thing comes in and hits an area, destroys a whole cross, it takes out like five areas, then negatively impacts four more areas around it on this board, in this grid board. Then it has a specific effect. So if it's like a global winter, everything in the frozen zones dies. If it's not that, if it's a volcano, everything in the temperate zones dies. You're like, what? This is this is how the game resolves. Oh, All the rest of it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Pretty much. It's just the last thing we do is flip over three tiles, and that's how it. What is this? But why would you not let one person move move up on that uh, instinct track, find out what happens, and watch them? If of course you would! <laughs> if they're sprinting for the north, then let's all go up to the north. <laughs> there, uh, there's something wrong with this bit, mate. No, 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 you build there. I just don't fancy it this turn, but you, you go well, right you, ahead. And... You, had, you had all of your spaces in that area, and now you've moved them all. You've, you've wasted all your points moving them. I don't understand. No, 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 that's fine. That's fine. I thought you liked it, so I thought I'd... Do the neighbourly thing. I'll move out. You go in there. Not a problem. There's a welcome mat there for you, mate, in uh, Volcanoville. I mean, I mean, definitely going to survive, Phil. But looking at that instinct thing, it's not like you flip over it and you go, okay, that's what's coming. You flip over the things it isn't. So you have to go through all three of the bad things to work out. Those are the three things, aren't it? This, the fourth one's going to happen. And then you have to go through the targets. These are the areas it's not going to land in. Quick game of Cluedo, or Clue for an American audience. Yeah, quick game of Cluedo in the middle of this deeply thematic game about Permian extinction. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing to me? What the... <laughs> 
of it. Who approved it? Who's going to buy it? I just don't. I think we know your thoughts on it. So it's a game that I really wanted to like, because I could see the labor of love that went into making this one, Ronan. It does look very good. The The artwork of the actual creatures on the game board is absolutely beautiful. I loved learning about the Permian Extinction. I learned more about that, and that's probably the, the biggest benefit I've got of researching this. It was on Kickstarter. I looked at it on Kickstarter. I said, absolutely, 100% no, I'm not backing that. And I'm sticking with it, Ronan. So you you don't even have to say it's a trap. I know it's a trap for you. It's a trap for me. I'll go and have a look at it, but I won't buy it. That's Pangea. You upset me. <laughs> this is not a good run of games in this half for you, by the way. <laughs> That's uh, Escape from Simon and Pangea so far. Should we move on to the penultimate treasure-hunted game of this year, Sean? Let's do it, Ronan. What is it? It's Pharaon. Pharaoh uh, N? Pharaon. What? Pharaon. Pharaon. Yeah. Okay. One to five player, 75 minute game. Designed by Henri Pym and Salas, who have done Monster Slaughter and Samsara between them. From Catch Up Games, who gave us Paper Tales, Fertility and Sapiens. Each of the players is an Egyptian royal child looking to secure themselves for the afterlife. We're going to play five rounds of action selection. And we're going to do that by setting up the board with five modular action areas. You mix and match them around to where you want them to be in this big circle. And then you have a resource wheel that goes in the middle of there and it's going to rotate each round. On the resource wheel are also five areas. They'll be linked to a different action area each turn and they tell you what resource you're going to have to pay in order to trigger the actions in the area it is next to. Now, when you pay to trigger an action, if you've paid the resource that is also linked to the action, then that resource counts as part of your payment to the action. So you're looking to time to trigger them at the right time to use your resources most efficiently. What actions are we taking? We can go and get offerings, which will give us more resources to trigger actions. It will give us actual actions or it will give us straight up points. We can go and get nobles that require us to put in five different resources. And when we get them, they give us a power and they also give us prestige points for the end of the game. There's the Nile area you can go to. When you go to the Nile area, again, you can claim resources. You can claim jars, which have various bonuses on them, like resources, different things. Or you can move up on certain tracks for the afterlife, which will score you end game points. The next action area is for artisans. When you go to artisans again, you can get prestige points or jars or resources. And finally, there's the burial chamber area in which you can move up the burial chamber track. When a player chooses to pass, they then go on to the first level of a pyramid. When it comes round to their turn, if all the other players haven't passed, they then move along their row of the pyramid and they get to take certain things. And as the game goes on, even though you've passed, you will still get small benefits and each person who passes goes on to the next level above the pyramid until everyone has passed and that is the end of the turn. After these five rounds, we're going to score points for what are called God's Objectives. Now, they get set out, and the gods have got a hand over each of two adjacent areas. Remember I said they were modular. You have to have done the objectives for both areas to score the points for that particular god. So that will change each game. You'll score points for all those nobles you've collected. You'll score points for artisans you can collect from various areas, for where you've gone on the burial chamber and the Nile tracks, and the resources you've got left over will score you a handful of points. And, Sean, that is Pharaon. Lovely, well-pronounced. 
Thanks. It's my second. It's my second spinning wheel game in a row. There you go. Very daunting looking was my first impression. What I came to realise is actually very simple. Everything that you do is is very simple. You play a resource tile to activate an area. Then you go and do a very simple action in that area that's going to score you points. Very, but quite quite simple once you boil it down. Yes. So they're hinging it on that wheel that I mentioned and the fact mm-hmm. that it moves around and therefore it will link in to different actions at different rounds of the game. It's an interesting idea. How did you feel about it in effect as best you could glean? It's going to depend on the strength of the actions and how different they are to each other so that you can go down paths to try and get to victory. Because if you don't have any difference to them why would you bother planning what color resource tiles you get then you just activate whatever you had to hand and score the points for it so if there if there are ones that you can channel and target then that will make the game for me if if they're all much of a muchness and it's this point salad then that will completely destroy the game for me so it hinges on that for me Ron. i think i'm going to break the mystery for you <laughs> Every single area is dull as Nile Ditchwater. How many of them do the same thing? Go there, you get resources. You go there, you can also get some resources. And in this area, you get a jar. What does that give me? Some resources. (laughs) All about these two. These two are different. You're right. You move up arbitrarily on random tracks. Oh. Oh, that track's no. That track's got two spaces on it. <laughs> three, zero, three points or seven points. But that's that's my point in itself. The, the actions are so dull. It the whole no, intrigue. no, no. That was my point. I said they were dull. <laughs> okay, all right, okay. So they're quite simple and they're, they're very dull in the in themselves. Where I would see a little bit of a little grab on my leg, saying actually, no, this is a decent game is if I had to plan what resources I took. If I had to put right, okay, I need whatever they are, the red, I need four reds to go and activate uh, action on the next turn because that's going to be where the reds are going to be. So what do I need to do? If, if it's all the same and they all do the same and they all give you the similar sort of points, why do I care? Yeah, I'll take some resources. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely coming down on why do I care. Um, I do love the <laughs> I do love the past mechanism, the fact that once you pass, you go into a pyramid, and it may be worth passing, and you can actually make a judge of hold on. You look, look like you might be playing for a couple of round, more rounds. I can only really do one more thing, but if I jump on the pyramid now, first one I do is going to get start player. But also, as I move along that row, I get to do stuff, and I get to do various things. So you're not out of the game. A lot of games like this, if you're just going for as many resources as you can then someone can be playing for 10 minutes longer than you are because you're like, you know, I I just haven't got that stuff. I like the fact that at least it's pulling you in and keeping you involved in that way. That's a nice mechanism. 100%, I wrote that down myself, and it kind of keeps the person who's playing a bit honest as well. They can't just sort of push it and push it, and I'm still playing, you're not playing, I can do whatever I want. No, I'm actually getting stuff, so you want to Do people often sing that to you at the the game game all the time? Mostly you. (laughs) I'm not the world's best singer. (laughs) Okay, Sean. So, does it look like the resource management gives this enough for you to make it a treasure? I think it's a point salad. I don't see the cleverness in there at all, Ronan. 
I just don't see why I'd be going for certain colours. And if I'm not going for certain colours, there's no game there for me. So add the lack of the lack of theme in there, and I just don't get it. It's it's a trap for me. We've gone back to mirroring each other here. <laughs> I've literally <laughs> it down. Dull theme scoring. Nope. Right. None of it seemed interesting. Just I think the noble cards are supposed to give you some excitement to give your own powers but the powers are back to being dull again at least in runestones the powers were exciting it was like you know 50% more of a hand size and you could do double of this and that suddenly becomes three times as powerful these are just so small and everything's so limited I think they came up with a mechanism they never came up with anything beyond a generic way of scoring that mechanism and that is the death of many a euro and it's the death of this one for me so a pharaoh a death on the nile a trap <laughs> okay okay so we're going to finish off this episode and rs and treasure hunts with viking yarl all one word not a Viking y'all. Viking y'all. Don't put a space in there. That's, that space was pillaged away. <laughs> it was. It was brutally pillaged away. Designed by Richard McCalson from SB Games AS, playing two to four players. Imagine this is a game about Vikings. And players of one of four Yarls who were free people from noble families. And the story is that the king is looking for a successor, and we're going to go out and look for fame and fortune in foreign lands. The whole aim of the game is to reach a certain amount of victory points. The map, which takes the form of the central board, is Northern Europe. And you're going to go and attack or try to settle various towns on the map. If it's an orange town, it means it's a pillage town and you can go there to just grab resources. If it's a silver town, it's, it's a town that you can settle and you can go and gain resources from settling it. And if it's a green town, it's a trade town. So you go there to trade. On your player board, you have a space for the ship and the army. And you place your workers onto the army to show you how, how big your army is, and your workers onto the ship, and your resources onto the ship to show you what, you, what the ships are carrying. On a turn, you're going to start off by drawing saga cards. And these are cards that you can play on your turn to change the rules or do something nice or bad to the other people. Then you can play movement and action or action and movement. So movement is ships are going to move three sea zones. Armies can move two land zones. And your armies can also be placed on a ship to be moved. You can also attack, which is one of your actions. And in your pillage towns, you roll dice. And the amount of dice you roll is directly related to the amount of Vikings you have in your army. Then the highest single dice in this battle, is going to be counted and it's going to determine who loses a player. If the pillage town loses, then you take over the town. If you manage to take the pillage town, then you're going to earn silver depending on how many Vikings you have surviving. You can attack to settle a town and that's going to score you victory points. The trade towns, are you going to be able to buy goods and Vikings? And lastly, you can create a settlement. And in this, you're going to spend goods to settle a town and you can store extra goods and Vikings. It's a very simple rule set, Ronan. But we've said that about before about games that things look very simple in terms of, sort of the games like Raccoon Tycoon. 
is this going to be too simple in that it's just not effective or is it going to be simple in that it's actually a framework for player involvement well that's like the the killer question right at the start <laughs> that's going all the way I think maybe we need to break it down a little before okay, we get to that go on, then. go on then okay I'll tell you one thing the whole thing's screaming for the game itself and the rulebook 100% is a graphic designer <laughs> because yeah it's a simple game it's not that easy to grok that it's a simple game because the whole thing's a bit of a mess and even the board's a bit of a mess and when you're giving me a setup instruction that's got a number 29 on a tiny, tiny little piece after the 28 other numbers on tiny little bits, the whole thing needs a refresh. You can tell it's coming from a very small company, Sean. It is. and I've got a funny feeling. I did see this one appear on Kickstarter a while back. I've got a funny feeling it might even be the designer's company and it's kind of his own thing that he's trying to get made. I think it, it failed funding the first time around and he had to adjust a few things. So when it comes to like a lack of a graphic designer, I'll let a small company like that off a little bit more than I would like a Queen or someone like those. Oh, definitely. Queen's graphic design is always good. We went over that. Okay. Here's my second red flag on it. Yep. Now, he does say for your first game, play to 10 points. But he also says several times in that rule book, play to as many points as you like. <laughs> well, what's the best way to play? And this is something that comes up again and again when we're looking at games is, no, you tell me what the best way to play is. I'm not working out the best way to play your game. You give me the rules. When he says something like, in the advanced game, play up to 27 points, but as many as you want to, really, I'm starting to feel that everything, especially the point scoring, has not been finally balanced. And it's just a system that hasn't been honed into an actual game. And that's a feeling I got running all the way through looking at Viking Yarl. I kind of felt that that was a product of the Kickstarter campaign. And I felt that it was a, a product of people sort of nagging him as, as Kickstarter campaigns seem to happen. And I think he's trying to please everyone. I think he, he needs to firm up his business model and say, no, this is what this is what you play to. Here's a, an easy, a medium, and a hard game. Here you go. That, that's, this is what you play to. This is a points value. It needs to be done, but I don't know that it's a red flag in the way that you said, Ronan. Well, playing to 10 points when building one settlement can score you six. So, uh, you know, you need three resources to build that settlement. But if I get to a place, two places, and build two settlements, I've won the game. Yeah, that's, yeah. 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 I think, I think the 10 points will just give you a feel for the game, and then obviously 27 points is probably where the, the game sits. I know where the game sits. Um, <laughs> you had a go at me about giving away too early, my thought. You've done it <laughs> for the last five Listen, or six games in you, a row. You've got to try and get shade and light somewhere. <laughs> I can't with something that's good. Something that's bad. Like, I liked the wheel idea. I liked the passing mechanism in Fair Own, but I just think it was married to something bad. You know, there's good and bad. I'm struggling, Sean. <laughs> I, uh, I, I think I think this is the one we're probably going to disagree on because I think, and I kind of alluded to it at the beginning, right? Now, I think this could be a framework for a really interesting game. I think everything on it is simple, but just the the fact that you're going to need those settlements, the store more goods and the store more warriors to build up your army. There's going to be that land grab in the in the middle areas. 
just the simplicity of placing your army on your ship to move them around i just think everything on it is simple it doesn't take away from that area control battle that's going to be in there i kind of that's why i mentioned raccoon tycoon i don't think it's going to be as good as raccoon tycoon but i have that kind of feeling and hope for this game okay the sagas yes a random fu card attacking it what could be anything anywhere on the board yeah but you know how many sagas people have and how many they be used but you have no idea what they are whether they boost themselves or mm-hmm. they screw you up and the person could be the other side of the board and they just take out your Vikings or take out your ship or make you move or do something to your settlement. If they damage a settlement, that goes from scoring you six points to minus six points. So 12 points wing in a 10-point game. Yeah. Those cards are random muck-randomosity, <laughs> mechanically broken and thematically bunk. I don't know if they're as wild as that. I think there are a couple of misnomers in there for sure. I, I listen. I'm as I, as I said. I, I think that this game could be a lot of fun. I just I, I think it won't stay out. Stay its welcome. I think there is a a quick game in there. I think you are going to amass those points rather quickly. You're going to need to go to the trade towns. You're going to need to pillage towns. You're going to need to set up your settlements and people are going to see those settlements and be able to attack them. And I, yeah, I think I think it would be a bit of to and fro. There'll be a couple of cards that you might have to have a rock and roll moment and rip them up. But I think in, in general, the game could be a lot of fun. Okay. We've set our stalls out. We have, we have. We have. Honestly... This is the biggest trap of the 36 games for me. I just saw nothing in this for me. I saw random. I saw simplified scoring. Just no reason for this to exist from name to to graphic design to mechanisms to the saga cards onwards. That's it. I'm not attacking you, but I saw nothing in this for me. So it was a trap. I, I, I could see the reasoning behind everything you're saying. I just... You kind of, I look beyond, behind the curtain almost, beyond the curtain. I just saw that the simplicity of the rules is not going to get in, in the way of the game. I think you could just have a lot of fun just attacking and bashing each other. And and it, you know what people are trying to do in a very simple economy, very simple attacking. And I, th- I think it could be crafty little treasure, but um, I'm not going to hang my hat on that treasure, but <laughs> I, I'll go with treasure anyway. That's Viking Yarl, which brings us to the end of our treasure hunts, right? That's it, Sean. That's them done and dusted. We might be squeezing out one more episode before Essen for some first impressions on some games we've played. If we do, it'll be out in the next couple of days. Obviously, if it doesn't happen, time's just caught up. We've been at work or whatever, so you won't hear it. But hopefully we will. If not, the next time we'll catch any of you guys is at the show itself, Sean. Yes, absolutely. We are on the Dice Tower booth on the Friday and the Saturday of the show. So 4 till 6 on the Friday and 12 till 2 on the Saturday. Yep, yep. That's that's the one. So come along, please, and uh, say hello if if you are in the area. We'll also be wandering around those two days in black game pit polo shirts with pit crew written across our back. Uh, And you'll definitely be able to see Sean's because it will be above most of the crowd. 
I don't know, that German crowd are quite tall, mate. <laughs> they are quite tall, you're right. But you, you're still fairly noticeable. <laughs> okay, shall we let these these nice people go? Ronan, thank you very much. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, everyone, very much for listening again. And we'll catch you, hopefully, before wrestling, if not, on the other side. Lovely. And as always, we are proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download the episodes, we're on Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify. And we have our social media uh, sites. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and we are most active on our Twitter account, at Podcast. If you wish to drop us a line, our email address is thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. Or another great way to contact us is to pop along to Board Game Geek and uh, look us up on our guild in there. Lastly, we also have our YouTube channel. We go there for pit stop videos, which are overviews on many, many different games and occasional convention coverage. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Music by E. Aaron. Boy. Boy. Boy.